Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 51 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mary, a woman who has a restraining order placed on her by the estate of Oliver Rodas Howard. I am <laughs> nothing but an only Darren. Hello, Mary. How are you today? You are not just only Darren. <laughs> So how are you? Wow, you were the one that got the Howard reference in and not me. We were talking about that earlier. Chance to get him in today. He's not a part of this one. So we got to find a way to get your your boy in. So oh there you God. go. Now, now there. Anyway, so how are you? What's going on? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm on vacation. That's how I am. Oh, yeah. Lucky How's you. Your... Oh, yeah. Sucks to be you. But anyway, you enjoy yourself over there at work tomorrow. Yep. I am running out and about, having uh-huh. a good time on vacation, and I will have a good time this week. We will start my vacation with a podcast tonight on Wilson's Creek, Mary, Yes, which is a good one. We're going to talk about this in a little while, so yep. we're looking forward to this. We've um, had a couple of good episodes lately. We haven't gone back into the old Trans-Mississippi since the old Pea Ridge days. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's been that a while. Was, how long? That's been a long time. I don't know. That was a while so, ago. So we're going to get back to these guys again, talk about some old friends that we yep. talked about last time as we had pre-Pea Ridge. So that's three times quick. But we're going to have a good time talking about that. I said pre-P Ridge. P-P Ridge. Annunciate. P-P Ridge. That's the, um, yeah, that, that's on the, the, the secret diaries, those ones. That's the all difficult <laughs> out. So eh, pre-P Ridge. Okay. Annunciation. Black Hawk War. There you go. Not okay. Gonna Black Hawk War? No. Okay. So how are There's you? There's our E rating. <laughs> Oh, there it is. There it is. I'm okay. You've already asked me that. Well, thank you. You haven't answered me, but thanks for asking. I did. I said, I'm good. How are you? Oh, now you asked me. I always be three times. I'm doing fine. Thank you. So off we go. Darren has selected appearing for. Oh, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> you know why? Because I'm on vacation. I don't care. Okay. That's oh, you must I, be on vacation right all now. the time then. Oh, well, okay. Well, well thanks for signing out, everybody. It was a great episode. <laughs> I will ask you, since you're not going to ask me, what are you drinking tonight, Mara? I am drinking Shine by Alora Brewing Company. It's an IPA. I picked that one because I, honest to God, did not have anything that uh, was Wilson's Creek related. But I thought like Shine is not what Franz Siegel and Lion end up doing at this battle. So, And I am drinking it out of my Ride with the Winner mug that was sent to us by John LaRoe of LaRoe Designs, which you can find his stuff on Redbubble. It's got a very cool flag on it, which uh, it's a great mug for any Civil War nerd. How about you? I'm drinking Life in the Clouds by Collective Arts, Mary. Canadian beer. Just like you, there's no rhyme nor reason why that affects anything with this. Nor do I have a Wilson's Creek mug, so I'm drinking out of my Fort Sumter mug. Because why not? Because I want to. And that's why. You know why? Because I'm on vacation. I can do the mug I mm-hmm. want. So we go. Last time we talked, we had a pretty good podcast last time. We talked about Ezra Church. We did. Now we're going to go a little bit more further west and south as we're going to head to just outside of Springfield, Missouri, Mary, yep. the corner of Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri, <laughs> back in the Trans-Mississippi to talk about the Battle of Wilson's Creek. Yes, which does, it's a battle that does not get talked about a lot. It's fought, you know, as we know, a few weeks after First Bull Run, but it's got some pretty strong repercussions in the Trans-Mississippi Theater and for the entire Civil War, really. Um, yeah. And as well, like, like I said, it's not one that gets talked about a lot. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's an important one to discuss, not just for the battle, but you've got to talk about the setup, which we're going to do, because Missouri is a state that goes through a lot in the Civil War. But again, doesn't get talked about a lot, right? No, Missouri is interesting. You know, uh, Missouri is it's a border state, just like some of the other ones we talked about. Kentucky, Maryland, for example. 
This one's different though. This is this Missouri is a tinderbox of social mm-hmm. unrest throughout before and heading into the Civil War. When we talk about secession, it was admitted as a slave state back in 1820 as part of the Missouri Compromise. And they were dealing with all kinds of stuff for a while. They had some the settlers coming in, the bleeding Kansas situation in 1854 that went to just before, before Fort Sumter, abolitionist Kansas people versus these pro-slavery Missouri people. And there was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of animosity that is still felt today if you go to Missouri about some of the other people. (laughs) Definitely. After Fort Sumter, Missouri, it was a split state. I mean, it was a situation where some supported secession, obviously some supported the Union. Obviously, most of the pro-slavery type people or people who supported the Confederacy, they weren't part of it. Again, they were a border state. But they were fairly Um, moderate when it came to their, you know, just their thoughts on it. Like they were slave owners, but they were also like, I think some of them were unionists too. So they didn't really have an opinion on secession one way or the other, I think. No, exactly. And a lot of them, because of some of the people we're going to talk about here, Daniel Lyon comes to mind is someone who brought people out Mm -hmm. against them because of the way he was. We'll talk more about that. Abraham Lincoln, you know him, Mary, the guy with the long hat. He's (laughs) 16th president of the United States. He wants to keep control of those border states we mentioned, Missouri, Maryland, and Kentucky. Now, Missouri is important Mm -hmm. because it's a huge source of manpower. It's a huge supply area. You got a lot of horses, a lot of cattle, you got a lot of animals, feed, stuff like that. So Rivers and railways too. And its bumper crop is surprisingly not cotton. It's bumper crop. Is hemp. It's always 420 there, Mary. Oh. <laughs> Don't question about that. <laughs> April 20th, which happens before 2-0. Good segue. Yep. 1861. You have a pro-secessionist group led by a couple of people, Captain John Murray and Captain Henry L. Root. They're part of the Missouri State Militia in Clay County, Missouri. They got a couple hundred guys. They're going to force their way into that uh, Liberty Arsenal near Kansas City, right? And they're going to seize a bunch of weapons and ammo from that federal arsenal. It's going to leave St. Louis as the only real other real federal arsenal in Missouri, and that's going to be a problem. Enter Nathaniel Lyon. Nathaniel Lyon is a strong patriot with a wicked temper, even worse than you, Mary. Oh, that's he's, yes, I knew there was going to be a Mary and her temper joke in there. He's very, he is said to have been the most tyrannical officer in the army, and he possessed a nearly psychopathic appetite for inflicting pain. His temper was just, it was one that often exploded with surprising fury beyond all sense of reason. Maybe he's my spirit animal on Tuesday nights. That's, that's how he is. He's born in Ashford, Connecticut. <laughs> which with the traffic in that state probably explains why he's so angry. You go through there. He's born in 1818, class of 1841 from the West Point, United States Military Academy, where he graduates 11th of 52. And he has an all-star group of classmates, Mary. He's mm-hmm. got Don Carlos Buell. He's got John Reynolds, Albion Howe, Richard Garnett. He's got a bunch of Civil War names and the mainstream names. So he'll end up fighting in Mexico and he'll fight in the, the Seminole Wars down there. We mentioned Bloody Kansas. He's going to be there as well. But he also participates in that 1850 Bloody Island Massacre in California, which sounds brutal. And it was. This is where 100 men, women, and children, Native Americans, were slaughtered. And he was part of that. He becomes very pro-union after being assigned to Fort Riley in Kansas. That's where he's going to be assigned and where he's serving at uh, that bleeding Kansas we talked about. Mm -hmm. So he's going to be a staunch abolitionist. He's going to be a member of the Wide Awakes in St. Louis. He's a guy who, because of his environment, is getting pro, pro, pro union, very, very anti-slavery. Yeah, he's very, in some ways, he's a lot like John Brown, just in how radical he seems to be. He said that the aggressions of the pro-slavery men will not be checked till a lesson has been taught them in letters of fire and blood. So he's very much a... a yeah, started parties, and he uh, he is said to have worshipped the West Point Trinity of duty, honor, country. 
Yeah, well, he was he was certainly a military guy. He was a patriot during that secession crisis. We talked about before, like when we talk about secession, he knew war was coming. You know, a lot of yeah. people who were talking before about how they were going to try to settle it peacefully. He has that quote: "It's no longer useful to appeal to reason, but to appeal to the sword." And this is back, you know, right when it's going on during the crisis. So he knows what's up. His goal, because he's living, in, you know, he's living in that area. He wants to keep Missouri in the Union. So what does he decide to do? He decides to try to raise a regiment of volunteers to help keep Missouri in the Union couple things. They're mostly German immigrants. We're going to see the beginning of Siegel and the 11th Corps yeah. coming out of this. But he only signs them to 90-day papers. And there's some legality at the time about the, how long they can sign these guys for. So his 90-day papers, which is going to be an issue we're going to see later on. So May 10th, 1861 in St. Louis, Missouri, Lyon and his regiment are going to move to capture that final garrison we talked about. So Kansas City's fallen and they got to, they want to make sure they secure the guns and the ammo at the one in St. Louis. Yeah, because it's the fourth so, largest in the U.S. And Lyon had actually been put in charge of looking after it by Francis P. Blair, who he's friends with. Uh-huh. And it's got 60,000 muskets, 90,000 pounds of powder, 1.5 million ball cartridges, it's a lot of balls. E.P. Alexander would have liked it there. Uh, 40 f- field pieces, siege guns, and machinery for the manufacture of arms. So it's a really important arsenal in this area for th- for them to keep watch over. And Lyon knows full well what has been going on, that there has been these secessionists that have been, you know, kind of pilfering these weapons from other arsenals, starting the Confederate Army, or what's going to become the Confederate Army, is starting to stockpile them. And for a Unionist like mm-hmm. Lyon, that is not a good thing. That's one way to anger a unionist like Lyon is to do shit like that, take federal property. And so you get this fourth biggest arsenal in the country, the only one in Missouri that's still there that Lyon desperately wants to have. Now, the reason why he's concerned is near that arsenal is going to be a group of secessionists under that militia we talked about, that state militia, that's going to be pooling and gathering in a place called Fort Jackson. Mm-hmm. He was afraid that that militia, who was right nearby at this fort, which is more or less just a kind of a campground, what is going to capture that last federal armory, and that's going to be in, in, in the state. So Camp Jackson, real quick, it was a camp basically used to just gather troops across Missouri. So it's under the control of Missouri's governor, extremely pro-secessionist guy named Claiborne Fox Jackson. Yep. Who got elected when Jackson. he said he lied when he was elected governor and said, no, 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 I'm not for secession. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, he's plotting with Jeff Davis. He was. And he he wanted Missouri to, to be no, no part of the union. There's no yeah. question he did. So he's got about 7,000 guys under this Missouri state militia. They're all volunteers. And what will happen is Lyon is going to go in there. He's got experience, guys. He's going to capture Fort Jackson and a guy named General David Frost. He's the head of that state militia. Lyon by now was a brigadier general. He's been promoted somewhere along the way. The camp's capture enrages the state of Missouri. It pisses them off because they feel like they've been invaded now. There's a situation where after the fort is captured, the locals, the people who come out, mostly Cardinals fans, by the way, (laughs) they come out and they start throwing rocks at these troops. They call them these German ethnic names, uh, whatever the heck they were saying back then. Lyon himself got hit with a rock and knocked off of his horse, which is going to kind of be a foreshadowing thing that's going to come later on. All this going on is making these, these German troops really nervous to see these groups gathering around them. Tensions rose. Somebody somewhere starts firing into the crowd. Yep. Okay. So you've got these federal troops under Lyon now firing on civilians. 28 civilians are killed, including a baby who was in his mother's arms. It's called the Camp Jackson Massacre. And the newspapers in Missouri have a field day with this, stoking the flames about this massacre. Mm-hmm. It causes all kinds of riots to break out in St. Louis on May 11th, 1861. 
So right off the bat now, Lyon's got himself a real, real problem based on his actions. Yep, he does. And it's one of these things where, you know, these citizens have been kind of not really pro-secession, not really pro-union, but they've kind of been tolerating being still part of the union and being a border state. This is an event that starts to tip things the other way and they're reaching their fuck this stage with it. May 11th, Fox proposes a military bill to create a new military force and grant him executive powers. He tried to get this passed before, but it didn't go. And after the St. Louis massacre, it does. So this will create what is known as the Missouri State Guard, which are going to be some of the troops that are going to be fighting at the Battle of Wilson's Creek, which we'll get to in a little while. Um, And they are going to be uh, commanded by a guy named Sterling Price. Um, Many of the men that are going to be part of this Missouri State Guard come from a place called Little Dixie, which is where a lot of pro-secessionists, like really hardcore ones live in Missouri. But basically, these actions of Lyon and and Franz Siegel is there too at this St. Louis massacre. They are what forced Missourians to get off the fence and make immediate personal choices. And those choices were, yeah, fuck this. We don't want to stay in the union. Like we're going to fight against these guys and what they're doing. The other thing that happens too after this is political and social organizations were no longer allowed to possess firearms. And there is a society that is pretty involved militarily. They're called the Turner Society. And they're based on physical fitness, but they have like a chess club and stuff like that. They are actually formed in Berlin in the, um, I think it's the 1850s. Well, Franz Siegel is part of this Turner Society. And just a little bit of background, because it kind of factors into to what's going on here. So one week after Lincoln's inauguration, the Turners in uh, St. Louis They actually barricaded the doors and windows on their building and they began stockpiling arms for fear that the pro-secessionists would take them. Siegel, leading up to, you know, secession and all that and the Civil War, he actually lectured them on military tactics and he has them adopt the drill manual used by the U.S. Army. And so this Turner Society that was... These were a lot of the men that enlisted with Siegel were part of this Turner Society. They are no longer allowed to possess these firearms anymore. So they're taking away from them the ability to fight. So you can see where this is going. So Missouri, you know, in response to that that massacre, that now they're really mobilizing. They finally are, have that Missouri State Guard you mentioned, Claiborne Fox Jackson. The governor is also going to be a part of this as well, along with um, Brigadier General Sterling Price, who you mentioned. And their overall premise is to protect the state from federal invasion. That's, mm-hmm. that's what they're doing. All those troops you mentioned from that 17 county area in Little Dixie, they're going to be really get involved with this. Not only in that area, though, it's going to actually organize throughout the state. It's going to start popping up in these little spots. Yeah, there's nine the different areas, right, where there's a general appointed in each one, and he's assigned to get the volunteers, right? So, I think that's how it worked. A couple weeks go by, and the tension's rising. And so it's just like any political situation, they want to cool things down. June 11th in St. Louis, Nathaniel Lyon decides he wants to try to maybe soothe things off. So he's going to call a meeting with Governor Jackson and Sterling Price at the Planter House Hotel. Now, he wants to sit down and try to just kind of cool things off. But again, Lyon has a bad temper. He's grumpy. He, he just not that guy. So yep. he's going to try to diffuse the situation and try to have a peaceful solution if possible. The meeting turns into a shouting match because of Lyon's temper. Talks break down after Lyon th- Lyon threatens them. So Jackson and Price decide to walk from the table. This the hell with this. And they're going to jump on on the, the train and head over to Jefferson City, the state capital, get the hell away from this yeah. guy. Because any chance of peace at this point, it's like a microcosm of the Civil War. It's a little Civil War is what it really is. That's already kind of going on. So the next day, June 12th, 
uh, Governor Jackson, he's going to call up 50,000 volunteers to defend his state from the federal army. So mm-hmm. it's expanding. And he also wants to continue to, for people to join the Missouri State Guards. Now he's ramping it up. Now he's like, well, I'm not sure what the heck Lyon said to him, but I've never been so mad I called 50,000 volunteers to fight you. Yeah, well, that's he, what he did. Lyon just got so pissed off. He was like, because when Price and Jackson say that they're, they're going to limit his power, he's like, this mm-hmm. means war. Like you said, he just, he threatens them. He basically says, like, I'm going to be on you. So Lyon, of course, finds out about what's going on with his volunteers. So in response, he is going to split his army in two. His army is called the Army of the West. Mm -hmm. And he's going to have 5,400 guys by the time he gets this thing all under control. He's going to send one portion of his army to Roloff, Missouri, which is a supply area. He wants to basically go there, secure the railroad. He wants to protect telegraph lines, just the stuff you do to set up before you go to war. He's going to send a guy named Colonel Franz Siegel to do this. Yeah. His army, we'll get to Siegel in a second. His army under Lyon, they're going to do is they're going to go to Jefferson City and they're going to go chase down Jackson and Price. So they're going to go there. They are going to actually occupy the state capital. First thing they're going to do is they're going to oust Jackson as governor and set up a provisional pro-union yeah. government under the guy's name of Hamilton Gamble, the former Missouri State Justice. Sounds Chief like Justice a wrestler. Yeah, exactly. Hamilton. In his corner, Hamilton Gamble. <laughs> and he's going to be the guy who's going to be in charge. It's going to ultimately send, the, send Jackson off to, to exile. We'll talk about that's what's going to happen in a second. But Siegel is going to be going down to Rolla, which is going to be just outside of Springfield, which is really where most of this stuff is going to take place going forward. And just a little bit of background about Franz Siegel. He's born in Baden, Germany, 1824. He's ed- educated at the, the Karl, Karlsruhe. I, I can't say that. I can't speak German. He resigns from the German army after that, though, and then participates in the Democratic Revolutions there in 1848. And there's a few other Civil War generals from Germany that are going to participate in these revolutions, too. I think uh, Schimmelfenning does. I think von Gilsa. I think Schirzanowski. I'm not 100% sure about that. I know there's a few of them that do. So he immigrates to America in 1852. Starts off in St. Louis as a teacher, but eventually becomes a superintendent. He speaks five languages, so he's a lot like Pettigrew in that way. Um, uh-huh. As I said, he's involved in that local Turner Society. But the other thing he becomes is Lyon's most trusted advisor. And we're going to see how this plays out when we start talking about Wilson's Creek. But the other thing to note about Franz Siegel is he's very, very ambitious, and he's also a little bit arrogant as well. Okay, I'll get to him. So I mentioned before Jackson, uh, the governor, now I guess the former governor of Missouri, mm-hmm. he's going to escape up the Missouri River, and he's going to have his 400 troops in the Missouri State Guard. They're going to go to a place called Boonville, uh, Missouri. Now, Lion, as I mentioned before, is going to chase him. He's going to chase Jackson, and it's going to result in, on June 17th, called the Battle of Boonbro. Boonesboro. Not to be confused, Mary, with the Battle of Boonesboro, with the E, which <laughs> takes place the following year with Sheridan and Beauregard. <laughs> yeah. There's two, bat- two battles of Boonesboro we're talking about here. This is the first one, okay? Lyon is going to get there and he's going to route these Missouri State Guard. They're going to capture 100 men. Many of the others are going to take off. They're not trained. So it's they're kind of shooting fish in a barrel. And it showed. The, the Federal Army on the line calls us the Boonesboro races for yep. how fast they ran. They're going to meet a different group later on with this. So they're thinking it's pretty easy. Jackson and Price, they're going to escape. They're going to flee towards Lamar, Missouri which is heading towards the southwest. What they want to do is meet up with additional Missouri State Guard troops in that area that are sprouting up, like we mentioned before. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's just about lines. So just think about what he's done here. 30 days, but just about a month, he yeah. has. He controls the Missouri River. He controls the railroads. He has installed a new provisional pro-union government. He has cut off the troops 
in that little Dixie area from the rest of the army because now they're split in the middle. The last thing he wants to do on his Missouri World Tour bucket list (laughs) is he wants to go destroy Jackson because Jackson had the nerve to insult him and try to fight him at Boonesboro. He wants to go get him. He wants to get Price's militia. Now Lyon and Siegel are going to be heading down towards Springfields, and they're going to be itching for a fight. So you mentioned Siegel's ambitious, and he's angry. Lyon is angry, and they know that everything's been coming up Lyon this Mm -hmm. entire month. Now they think, we got these guys pinned in the corner of the state. Let's go get these guys and finish them off. And if they can finish these guys off, his headaches in Missouri are probably going to be over. That's that's what he's thinking. Yeah. But then you have, on July the 5th, you have the Battle of um, Carthage. Lion moves, he moves Siegel west of Springfield towards Jackson and Price, who's camping at Carthage, Missouri. Yep. This is where it was probably a lesson learned yeah. that he probably should have paid attention to with Siegel. So I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but, but it doesn't yep. turn out too well for all... The German here. No, it doesn't. So Siegel's commanding 1,100 troops here, mainly Germans. Governor Jackson is at this battle. This is the one time a sitting governor will be commanding troops at a battle in the United States. And he's fighting against his own state too, which is weird because he's just he's been ousted by by line as we already talked about the there's 4,000 troops in the Missouri State Guard so right there Siegel's already outnumbered but as we're going to see Siegel doesn't really consider being outnumbered to be a thing that would possibly stop you he must have had the same math teacher as I had when it came to that they end up fighting they chase Siegel's brigade to the outskirts of Carthage which they make them run for 10 miles so we're already seeing some foreshadowing here for the 11th Corps unfortunately and the, and this forces them to eventually face off against each other in the town square. Siegel orders a retreat when he learns of more forces outside town, which turned out to be unarmed recruits, so they weren't really a threat. The state guard pursues Siegel, but Siegel manages to have a successful rear guard, and he makes it back to Carthage and then retreats further to Sarcoxy. But yeah, like as you said, Lyon should have paid a little bit more attention here because first of all, Siegel's going, he's outnumbered, and then secondly, he's like taken off without saying anything. Yeah. But one, now one thing, Lion, you know, what he learns is that it's going to be difficult to fight higher numbers. And and Siegel probably has a little bit of confidence with this as well, overconfidence. Now, Price, they won this battle, but he realizes he needs to train his guys. So what he's going to do, this Missouri State Guard under Governor Jackson and Sterling Price, they're going to move south from Carthage at this point to Kowskin Prairie, Missouri, which sounds like a wonderful metropolis, by the yeah. way. In the southwest corner of the state, right there with where, where Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma all kind of meet. In this Kowskin town, Price has time now to drill these guys think of glory you know it's sergeant major yeah. you know sergeant he has major. a chance to work to work these guys now so he has a lot of time to get these green militia guys basically try to turn them into an army the best he can yeah but the funny now, thing about price is he's described as a guy that has very limited military ability you know he's not the most he's not seen as the most talented guy he has not attended west point at all um he was involved in the missouri mormon war and the mexican war he's actually governor of missouri too so he's got that in common with Jackson. Um, He doesn't really have a great reputation. We're going to see when McCullough comes in here that McCullough is not a huge fan of his at all. His troops, Sterling Price's troops, do call him Old Pap, though. Yeah, very important name. So just south of where Price and Jackson's armies are training is the state of Arkansas. You can Mm -hmm. almost, on a warm day, you can smell the trash. You're so close, right? (laughs) So in Arkansas, there are 5,000 troops there under Benjamin McCullough mm. of the Confederate Army are located. Now, McCullough, he sees it as an opportunity for a Confederate Missouri. So all those things we talked about before control the rail lines, 
the manpower, the cattle, all that stuff. He sees this as an opportunity, as well as an opportunity to protect Arkansas and put a little buffer in between the Union and his state of, of Arkansas. He also doubts Jackson's and Price's ability to do anything. He, because if they're, yeah. they're green, he knows. So he thinks, well, if I take my 5,000 guys, guys and I go up into Missouri, I can join these guys and stop Lyon's army. I can control the state. That's what he's thinking. He, he's thinking the right way with that. But, you know, he, he has a quote, McCall says, we must meet and rally the forces of Missouri. I shall raise every man I can, every man I can get in the state and turn this invading force back. He's got this vision of pushing them back, taking control of Missouri and hopefully getting the state to finally flip the Confederacy, which is what the ultimate goal was. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Just some background on McCullough. He's born in 1811 in Tennessee. He has no schooling past the age of 14. And Davy Crockett was one of his mentors. So for a while, McCall is going to work on the Mississippi. He's going to spend time as a trapper. So he's that got that kind of like, you know, living on the frontier kind of thing. He follows Crockett to Texas in 1836, but misses a rendezvous point with him. He falls ill and he never makes it. And you know where Crockett's headed is the Alamo. Well, by the time McCullough's recovered, finds out that Davy Crockett's been killed at, been killed there. And but he, he probably also found out there's no basement in the Alamo. Exactly. <laughs> so he ends up joining Sam Houston's army, part of the revenge at uh, San, is it Jacinto? Am I saying Jacinto. that? Jacinto. San Jacinto. Just on April the 21st. Really interesting quote about McCullough. This is how he's described. A self-contradictory blend of the Victorian gentleman who drank sparingly, never indulged in the use of tobacco, treated ladies with utmost respect, and settled his personal quarrels by rules of the code duello and southern western brawler capable of smashing a chair over the head of an antagonist in the dining room of a Washington hotel. So he sounds like he's a really, uh, sounds like he's got a bit of a temper on him. He's a Texas Ranger, does not like West Point, and as we know, he does not never attended West Point. And he secures federal property, including weapons, when Texas secedes. So I'm sure he's uh, pretty high on um, Lion's shit list for people. He's not He's not on the Christmas list. So <laughs> um, as the summer goes on, July 29th, 1861, a town called Cassville, Missouri. It's just a few miles from Cowskin and just north of the Arkansas border. This is where the armies are going to connect. This is where they're going to blow the conch shell and they're all going to get together <laughs> and get together. So you have this army with Jacksons and Prices, and now with this army of McCulls. So now you got about five thousand guys. You got a, you got a bunch of guys being added to his total troops. So now you're looking at an army of the Western Army of about twelve thousand guys. So you got a lot of people on. A lot of them are inexperienced. A lot have no weapons, but they've got the numbers. They're starting to realize that they can start to find you know some sort of formal army. Now Lyon, his Army of the West. Not to be confused with the Western Army. Yep. Why, why make things easy for anybody studying the this later? The names at the beginning you of know? the Civil War are just so, like, they make it even more confusing when you go, like, when you're starting to go forward in the Civil War. It's like, mm -hmm. didn't we have this army before and weren't they fighting for the other side? Oh, definitely. Now, Lyon, his Army of the West with his 5,400 guys, yep. a lot of these guys are experienced in that bleeding Kansas. There are a lot of locals who are kind of tough ruffian types in this army. They're going to start to march from Springfield to hook up with Franz Siegel who had left down before, ended up getting that battle. We talked about with Boonesboro, yeah. but they're going to try to get together now. Now, Lyon had a similar issue to what we talked about Irvin McDowell with Bull Run, and that I mentioned a little bit ago. It's those 90-day papers are starting to expire, those enlistments mm -hmm. of those guys he signed up. Yeah. What happens is the 90-day comes before the battle, and a lot of the guys do screw. A lot of the guys take off the hell with this, and yeah. they go. And so it does reduce many of his people down to that 5,000-ish number, give or take. His army was also tired. They were sick of marching. Don't forget, they, they were in St. Louis, and now they're down on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border, which takes forever to get down there. And it's also summer. 
and it's hot. It's summertime. There's dusty, crappy roads. I mean, all you see in Missouri is steak and shake and porn ads on the highways. That must be distracting <laughs> and then a church the soldiers. Sign, going and then a church, church sign. Right, exactly. Steak and shake, porn, so, church. <laughs> they march 50 miles in 30 hours. Now, that's crazy. I don't think my wow. car goes that fast. You know, but it's, it's a lot of marching. This rebel Western army, these 12,000 guys, as we get into early August 1861, they also start to move. Now they're trained a little bit anyway. They, they got some training in them. So they're a little, they're better than what they used to be. They get about 10 miles southwest of Springfields and they stop in this valley that's full of supplies and food. It's like a little farmland. Yep. And they start raiding farms, taking food, and they're going to set up camp. There's also a water source that runs right through it called Wilson Creek, mm-hmm. which is where they're going to pretty much stay going forward. Now, Lyon, sitting in Springfield, he knows his army is completely outnumbered. He sees the troops that are forming, and he knows the rebels now are about 10 miles away. He knows they're close, and they have more numbers. He's starting to think, okay, I'm, I want to fight somebody, but I ain't stupid here. I got to yeah. think about what I, what I want to do here. He fully expects that any minute he's going to be attacked. He's just thinking they're going to want to push yeah, me out of here. Yeah, he really starts to get demoralized and his troops and those close yeah. to him. John Schofield is here, who we see later on. You know, he goes right through to the end of the Civil War. He fights at Nashville. He's his uh, he's his chief of staff at this time. And he definitely oh. notices like that lion is feeling the weight of this, knowing he doesn't have enough troops. He doesn't. So he, lion picks up the phone. He calls over to calls over to Cairo to talk to John Fremont. The Good listen, luck with that. You, you got 50,000 50, guys hanging out. Okay. Do you think you can send me some of his guys and Fremont says, Oh, no. who this? Yeah, he doesn't want to send um, any troops. Lion has no desire to leave the area without a fight. He's just that yeah. type of guy. He's proud. He goes, I, I'm going to stay here if I can. You know, he has to fall back to his f- supply base in Raleigh. He knows he's going to have to at some point, but he'd like to get in a little, he wants to get his nose bloodied first and he wants to cause a little bit of damage. So Siegel on August 9th, 1861, is going to come up with an idea and offer it to Lion. I, I can't do a German accent, so I'm not going to try. I can't either. But he says, but he says, well, you know, we're already outnumbered. He actually advocates splitting his army in the face of greater numbers, a la Lee at Chancellorsville. Yep. And he wants to get behind the rebel army and he wants to attack him from both sides. Now, they want to do it the next morning, okay? So he wants to take the army and march at night and I'll launch a surprise attack at dawn on August 10th, 1861. And he figures, well, at worst, it's going to buy Lion time to get back to Rolla. It's going to, because he's thinking any minute he's going to be hit. Yeah. It's a crazy risky plan because you have still have new troops. Yeah. Anytime you split your army in the face of greater numbers, it's really, really risky. Yeah. What he doesn't, what he, but he, what he doesn't know is McCullough and Price are sitting back at their camp and they have the same idea. They want to attack the next day too. August um, 10th is a popular day apparently certainly is some (laughs) tough day in history you know but lion was right he was going to be attacked the next day and Mm -hmm. he does get the jump on him primarily because of the equipment that the secession army have and that is they don't have cartridge boxes and it's funny we've talked so many times in these podcasts about how weather affects things of course it rains and because it's raining those bullet cartridges are going to get wet and the powder is going to get wet and they can't use them until they dry because they have no cartridge boxes. So they have to wait until the next day. Otherwise, they might have hit on the march. They might have bumped right into each other. Exactly. Yeah, because they start marching. Now, the interesting thing about this is when when Siegel presents this plan, Lyon is actually a little bit hesitant, but he feels like he's got no other choice because some of Lyon's other commanders are like, uh, no, fuck that. Like, this is crazy. But Lyon, he says, Siegel has 
has a great reputation, and if I fail against his advice, it will give Siegel command and ruin me. Then again, unless he can have his own way, I fear he will not carry out my plans. So Lion is afraid if he presents his own plan, Siegel's going to do, like, pull out his fuck this card. So Lion feels like he's been backed into a corner. He recognizes the ambition of Franz Siegel, yet Siegel has become one of his most trusted advisors. Now, one thing he has going for him is the element of surprise, okay? The last thing, the absolute last thing McCullough and Price think is going to happen is they're going to be attacked. It's, they just, it's not even a realm of possibilities in their mind. So they don't bother to put up pickets or vedettes around the camp. They're completely blind to an attack if it, come, if it comes within the next 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And so in the rain, overnight, Siegel and Lion are going to start to march in position to attack on dawn the next day yep. at 810, what will yep. be called the Battle of Wilson's Creek. Lion's going to march north of the Rebs. Siegel's going to march around the Rebel right and get behind them, and he's going to actually make it. Lion, he's, he's a confident fellow, mm-hmm. no question about that. He says right before the battle starts, in less than one hour, the Rebs will wish they were a thousand miles away. So he's thinking, okay, he knows he's outnumbered. He thinks he's got better truce. He has the element of surprise. Yeah. So at five, five o'clock in the morning on the 10th of August, 1861, a guy from Pittsburgh, PA, named Captain James Totten, who if I, looks like his guns are right behind you, Mary, if yeah. I'm that picture right there. Yeah. He's going to be the commander of the 2nd U.S. Artillery Company F. He's going to set up on a ridgeline known as Oak Hill. Mm-hmm. which will later be called Bloody Hill. But Oak Hill is what the name of the hill is at the time. At 5 a.m., he is going to open fire on the rebel camp. Now, Siegel is south of the rebel camp. He's going to set up his infantry on a ridge overlooking the Sharp Farm. It's a farm that's just facing the valley south and where the rest of the army is. Upon hearing Totten's guns open, he's also going to order his artillery on a Backhoff's battery under a guy named Captain Edward Schetzenbach. He's going to open fire on the 2,000 Rebs that are camped around the Sharp Farm. The Rebs are going to awake, and they're going to run like hell. They're going to hear the noise. Many of the Rebs, uh, mostly Missouri State Guard, they've never seen a cannon. This is what I mentioned the other day when we were talking before. There are stories where when these Missouri folks were marching into this battle, they were seeing cannons and they were asking their captains, what are these things? And they'd be explained what they were. They'd never seen one before. That's how green these guys crazy. are. They're going to be asked to go face artillery fire the same day after they know what a cannon yeah. was, but that's it's kind of funny. Makes sense though. They don't, you know, There's no pictures. They're from backwoods. They don't know what <laughs> see these things are, right? So Lion is going to have 1,600 or so men on his front line. Uh, Siegel's going to have 1,200 men and they're on both sides of the rebel army. So they're in a great position. Herein lies the problem, Mary is unlike some of these other battles we talked about, like Bull Run, for example, when yep. you could talk, but you had too many people mess. Actually, when we talked about last week, it was a great example of that, of uh, Ezra, yep. where there was no communication. There was no ability to communicate no. this one. They had no way to contact each other. They knew when they heard the guns to attack the battle, but they had no idea what was going on. Siegel, he has the ribs on the run because mm-hmm. he, he does. He surprises yep. them. He, they get up and they take off. They're having breakfast. He sends in his infantry into the field at that sharp farm. He's going to hit a line of like 700 rebels who they're going to drive right back. They're going to try to reform and fight Siegel, but they can't. They just can't. Siegel's guys are too, too strong. So things are going pretty well on the south side of the battlefield. Now, on the north side, Lion also is, has the beginning of his infantry start to move as well from Oak Hill. He's going to have three brigades, uh, Samuel Sturgis, George Andrews, and George Deitzler. And all three are going to hit that Missouri State Guard, specifically a cavalry brigade out of the guy under a guy's name of James Cawthorn, who was under James Rain's division. They're going to be at a headquarters in a place called the Gibson Mill. By 530 in the morning, the Reb Cavalry, about 300 guys under a guy named Colonel DeWitt Hunter, they set up a battle line. So they're going to try to fight these guys along Oak Hill to slow 
Lions roll is pretty much what they're going to try to do. Mm-hmm. But they get driven back. There's, there's too many people outnumbering them. Lions Brigade now is going to make the crest of the hill. So they've made the top of the hill. They have a commanding position, which is about a thousand feet high. So they get a good view of the entire thing. And so for the first hour, things are going pretty good on the north and the south for, for this army. Yeah, they are. But as the battle starts, McCullough and Price are in the valley of Wilson Creek and they're eating breakfast in their tent next to Edward's cabin. So what happens here is something that we hear about at a few other Civil War battles, and that's the acoustic shadow. And it prevents them from hearing anything. They're not that far from the battle, but they can't hear anything. So there's artillery firing from the north and south of where they are. It wasn't until 30 minutes after it started that they found out when a the guy comes to be like, uh, shit's going down and you guys need to come deal with it. So McCullough orders Price to lead the Missouri State Guard up the slopes of what is going to become known as Bloody Hill. Well, what's interesting about this, that this McCullough story, right? For one, McCullough never wore military uniform during battle. You know no, he, wore? he had a black velvet or velvet, he right? Was- he was the most interesting man in the world. That's who he was. Yeah. He had a black velvet civilian suit he yeah. wore, which black. you got to admire. Nick. God, no like I was just he, picturing him like, did he have a pimp hat too? I would have, with a purple feather. Yes. You know, he, he, he hated military <laughs> uniforms. So so what's interesting about this, you mentioned the acoustic shadow, which is true. Cawthorn's messengers rides up and says, hey, um, not for nothing, but, you know, we're getting hit. We're getting driven back by this, these Union Army guys. Mm-hmm. Now, McCullough doesn't believe the guy because what happened was like, about a week before, this same unit were at a place called Doug Spring. They overreacted when they saw a bunch of deer run through the woods and they went berserk firing and everything, thinking it was Union troops. Now, here's the same guy again saying, oh my God, Union troops. So it's that boy you cried wolf thing. It wasn't until a second messenger came along and told them they started to take it seriously. But even at that point, he's aware now they're being attacked. He tells a second guy, I will inspect the field after I finish eating. That's what he tells him. Okay. The acoustic shadow thing, to your point, it, you see this on battlefields sometimes. Gettysburg is a great example. They said you could hear Pickett's charge in Washington, but you couldn't hear it in Cashtown. It's just the way it is. It's just the sound goes through the valley, skips over spots. Yeah. McCullough says he didn't hear it, which is probably true because it, mm-hmm. it does happen. Yeah. McCullough is going to head over to Price's headquarters, just like you said, and he's going to meet and discuss options to include Price's Missouri State Guard. He knows now Lion is to the north and Seagulls to the south, and he has a not great Bob situation he's, he has, <laughs> has to deal with. Okay. He just does. Yeah. The first thing he has to do is organize this, uh, the Southerners that are driving from their camp running like sheep. He has to try to get them to set up a counterattack. So Lyon, on the Union side now, he's sitting on top of Oak Hill, and he's got about 2,800 men, and he's got six guns. So he's got a great position. He's sending his three brigades in, into the, setting them into those battle lines while, mm-hmm. the, while that tartan artillery is firing. The artillery also slows down his own guys because they can't go because the cannons are blowing up in front of him. So it slows down Lyon's own infantry from advancing. What that does, it buys time for Price to set up a defense on that southern side of Oak Hill. That wasn't the only reason why, but it certainly did... you know, factor into into this. You're talking about 6, 630 in the morning here. So it's still early. This is about an hour in. The Rebs do begin that counterattack of Lyons By the Pulaski, Arkansas battery? Pulaski battery was east. It was probably about a mile east. And that causes damage throughout this battle for the Mm -hmm. Union. Now, the troops are running towards them, fleeing from Siegel's attack. So just, just imagine you are on this Missouri State Guard and you're lined up in battle line. 
And you've got troops running into you from behind, running from this army behind you. How it must have been. And that's how it was going to be. Now, he's going to, they're running from it from, uh, from an attack of Siegel. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to set up a counterattack using James McBride's 7th Division of Missouri State Guard under Price. And they're going to try to charge up the southern slope of Oak Hill, Sturgis's and Andrews Brigade. And this is going to be kind of a repeating thing with this because... They're going to keep going. It's like running into a wall with this. It's going to go yep. back and forth and back and forth. And that's why they call it Bloody Hill. Just my guess, but that's mm -hmm. what they call it that. The train is tough. It slows down McBride's guys. What happens is, too, is because of the smoke and because of the troops, that first and second Missouri, they begin to separate and split into two, creating complete disorganization of chaos yep. and of falling back. Troops under John Hughes' brigade, not the actor, but the actual military guy, Mary. <laughs> He's part of the Missouri State Guard as well. Yeah. You know, he was a guy, speaking of him, John Hughes, he was a slave owner, to your point, who was pro, who was anti-secession. Yeah. But he decided to join after Lyon did what he did at that Fort Jackson. So he's a perfect example of a guy who probably wouldn't have been involved in this whatsoever, but because of Lyon's actions drew him out. Yeah. But he's going to be fighting Lyon. What's interesting about these Hughes Brigade guys is they had no weapons. They're on the front line and they're standing on that front line with no weapons. Yeah. And they're told to wait. Eventually, someone's going to get hit. And you'll get one to pick one up. It's kind of a funny thing to think about it being told. If you imagine, these guys weren't in reserve waiting for guns. They're on the front line well, of the southern Well, that's like Russian Stalingrad, right? Where they were like, okay, here, we're going to pair you up with somebody. You take a stick, you get a rifle. The person with the rifle dies, you pick out the rifle kind of thing, right? <laughs> you know, you know, short stick right there. <laughs> now, while this is going on, simultaneously seagulls south that sharp farm yeah now he's sitting back loving the sight of watching these rebs running in a panic north towards line i can yep. really imagine what he was what he was thinking the rebs had more numbers but the surprise attack completely disorganized them and really helped seagull just like shiloh in a way you had these rebel troops all ending up at different companies and units mm -hmm. just just yep. imagine the, the chaos of running around is what they were well they were all scattered the too like you don't have brigades sleeping in the same spot right. like they're there's regiments all over the place, right? right. Yeah, I mean, and it was like, like for example, the first Arkansas Cavalry, yep. right? They were camped kind of all over the place with their horses. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what people, one thing that people don't talk about a lot of times at this point, the early point of the war is the animals. These horses haven't heard can of fire either. The horses start freaking out. Yeah. So the, they're getting fired upon. They run like hell. Now, the, as later in the war, they you know they get adapted to it and they get yep. used to it, I guess. But at this point, they're running. You got the men running. You got the horses running. They just couldn't be controlled. As soon as they first the first sounds of battle, they mm -hmm. all took off. Now Siegel's going to get a hundred prisoners of war right off the bat. Here's what's weird too. He bags a bunch of wagons filled with muskets. Mm -hmm. Now I remember thinking, wait a second. I know there's a bunch of guys on that hill with no muskets. Here's a wagon full of muskets that yep. no one's using that just got captured. It's so such a it's like kinda... amateur hour, right? This is so much. Right. There's there's a lot of parallels here with, I think, Bull Run with the disorganization, the miscommunication. People really don't know. They're all green here as well, just like you see at Bull Run. Right. But this one's just complete. I mean, the it fact is. that you got these poor guys without guns. Meanwhile, yeah. you got a bunch of guns sitting here. You know, so by eight o'clock in the morning on this date, McCulloch's line is completely broken by Siegel. It's mm -hmm. completely broken. And despite the fact that they had significantly higher numbers. Now, as Siegel is attacking Rowdy McCullough, the Rebs, they're launching that counterattack I mentioned on that Oak Hill. Yeah. Just picture bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat. You got these experienced Federals. I mean, quotation fingers experienced because they were, but not really. They, they were just yeah. starting out too, but they were better trained. 
versus these bright green Missouri State Guardsmen. Now, Lyon, at any moment, he's expecting to see Siegel's men coming from the south. He thinks that they're going to come pushing through. He's sitting there, you know, with his hands rubbing together. <laughs> he, he's just waiting because he wants to close that vice on this battle. Yeah. And looks like it, it looks like it's happening. Now, at 8 a.m., Siegel's not coming. Know what he's doing? He's still back at the Sharp Farm. Yeah. And what he does, he sets up his army along a road called the Wire Road. Now, he, he does it to block it. He's not moving forward. He's just setting up a line. The McCullough, they're going to eventually, they're going to get their shit together here. McCullough's going to lead a brigade under Lewis Haybear called the 3rd Louisiana, uh-huh. along with the Missouri Artillery with Reed's Fort Henry of Fort Smith's battery. They're going to push back. Now, what's interesting about, we talk about the animals, Mary. This 3rd yeah. Louisiana is the one that had the mascot named Sergeant. You heard about him? Is he the camel? Nope. He's a dog. That's why I said a dog. So, oh, did you he, say dog? He, <laughs> he might have been smoking a camel. I don't know. But he, but, <laughs> I don't know but, why but I thought camel. But, but it's kind of a bummer story. So he, so they had a dog was running along the battle line, and these Aww. Louisiana guys are trying to get him back. Get, get back, get back, get back. Yep. And unfortunately, the show doesn't make it. But uh, but he had, but it's sergeant was a guy. This is where it gets messed up though. Siegel is going to look. And he's going to see on a ridge line, and he's going to see four hundred troops marching along the ridge line. He assumes they are troops of the Missouri State Guard. That are retreating back. He just th- he assumes yep. this is what has to be going on. He thinks they're unarmed. He sees them emerging from the woods near this ridge line. He goes, "Okay, this is what we expected. We know who these. We know these guys are either friendlies or they're surrendering. Mm-hmm. One or the other." He just sets a couple of skirmishes forward from that wire road line, yep. and he leaves his column completely exposed. Now, yep, his, his flank isn't that right, the, like right. yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> The 400 guys he sees are these third Louisiana guys. Yeah. These are not surrendering and they're certainly not friendlies. Now, they had rallied and reformed at a place called the Ray Farm, which is a kind of northeast of the battlefield is where they were. And now they're marching south back towards Siegel's line. Now, McCullough, he's going to do the rallying himself. He messages James McIntosh to hurry up and get his second Arkansas rifles down with them. He wants to get them together, hurry and join down that wire road, and he wants to hit Siegel. Now, Siegel is told by his skirmishers, this guy's coming, this troop's coming, and he goes, no, no, we think they're Lions guys coming south, just like we think, don't worry about them. He misidentifies them in that haze the battlefield. He thinks they're his own guys. So Siegel tells him, don't fire on them, they're friendlies, just don't fire on them. He goes, I'm going to send a scout out just to go meet them. The scout goes out, immediately gets killed. They kill him, shoot him right down. So he's like, well... James McIntosh, the Confederate, he's going to deploy two companies into battle lines joined by that Missouri State Guard troops. They're going to get within 40 yards of Siegel's line. They're going to get really, really close, and they're going to open up artillery on them. And then they're going to be fired by a volley from the 3rd Louisiana. Siegel is absolutely stunned. Capital P, pucker effect moment for Franz Siegel. But then he still tells his guys, don't return fire. He yep. still thinks they might be friendly guys. The Union troops, they begin to infight. They, 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 they drop back. What the hell's going on here? They do finally realize what's going on. They start to fight these guys. Now, this is where it gets interesting, too, is these guys, they're lying on their stomachs trying to fight. They can't see anything. They're stealing each other's rifles. They're stealing each other's ramrods. All kinds of stuff's going on. There's one point with a battlefield in this cornfield. The rink gets so foggy you couldn't see anything. So they just yelled ins- insults back and forth at each other since they couldn't see anybody. You That's amazing. You fucker. Tastes great. Less filling. Tastes great. You know, <laughs> whatever, whatever they yell back and forth. But that was going on. Now, um, 
Finally, Macintosh says, well, he's commanding the 2nd Arch- uh, Arkansas Rifles, right? He orders those rifles and the 3rd Louisiana to charge. 3rd Louisiana says, okay, we don't report to you, so we're not going to do it. Yeah. So they don't go. He's like, all right, fine. He has the 2nd Arkansas Rifles go. Only half of them follow. So they end up going, but they still get a huge numerical advantage. So you got 900 Rebs going against 300 uh, Union guys at this point. It drives back the Federals. Even though this chaos is going on, they do drive them back. And so they, they keep going and going and going until the rebel the Union artillery mm-hmm. opens fire and they kind of get stopped. But it's, Siegel himself runs like hell. He oh. goes... He's he gonna does. go find he's gonna go find a place in the field that he's gonna hide to avoid capture is what he does. Yep. Finally, when the coast is clear, you know what he does? He leaves and goes back to Springfield. And he doesn't he says say that. shit. And he doesn't say what <laughs> he says that. He says he says the hell with this, and he walks up the road, goodwill hunting style. He just disappears and goes. So it's kind of like he's when back. someone drops off the face of the earth around nine o'clock at night. Yeah, exactly. Happens. Yeah. It happens, you worry. <laughs> but like, but like um, he's back in Springfield by 5 p.m. He lost 64 guys killed, 150 captured, and he lost three guns. Now, Lyon, we mentioned the communication, has no idea Siegel's gone. Nope, he's got. And this is when, when Siegel leaves, this is when the battle shifts in the South's favor. This is getting close to the time where Nathaniel Lyon is starting to get a little bit desperate. You know, he's wondering where the, where the fuck Siegel is. He actually gets wounded twice when he's trying to rally his troops. He gets grazed on his, just across his head, and he gets shot in the leg and at this point he says to Schofield it is as I expected major I'm afraid the day is lost like we're fucked and Schofield responds no general let us try again they do they do rally but the numbers do tell the story at this point you have hand-to-hand combat and they're doing their best to keep it going but they see the army falling apart before their eyes he ends up in a situation where he gets himself in trouble here right (sighs) he finds he finds he finds himself surrounded and off of his horse Mentioned before how with the whole rock situation back at yeah. uh, Camp Jackson, he picks up a rock and he throws it at a guy named William Morgan yep. and hits him right in the face. His brother, John Morgan, pulls out an old horse pistol. I just thought of him. Captain Morgan. Yeah, that's what I thought too. You know, he, <laughs> he, he, he shoots him, uh, hits Lion in the, uh, the chest. Lion's last words are, I am killed. He ends up dying on the field. His body gets left behind by the Union, too. They leave him behind, oh which God. is weird, too. The, the interesting thing about this is that just before the battle, Lyon actually says to Schofield, I'm a believer in presentiments, and I have a feeling that I can't get rid of that I shall not survive this battle. I will gladly give my life for a victory. And when he rides off, like after he said to Schofield, the day's over, and Schofield's like, no, 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 it's not. Like Lyon, he goes off into the center of the fighting, and he says, come on, my brave boys, I will lead you forward. And he attempts to to kind of rally them and when Schofield is like um probably not a good idea Lyon just says I am but doing my duty so he's putting himself out there like this is a lot like what Beauregard does second day at Shiloh he does if you're bored you can go on YouTube and there's a really cool video of two old codgers who were there that it's colorized talking about so cool that talks about the the death of Nathaniel Lyon. And they were right there and explained this whole story. Yeah. Like it, it, it's like here in real time. It's really, really cool. Yeah. Well, actually, if you but go he, onto our Twitter page and you just go through our timeline, it's on there because okay. I'm pretty sure I retweeted it the other day. Lyon dies, obviously, and the command's going to fall to uh, Samuel Sturgis. Now, he's going to try to continue what he can. He's going to send him the 1st Kansas mm-hmm. under a, a diesel's division led by a guy named John Halderman. He's told basically to go to go and hit the troops, just go, again, to try to go get him. And he tells his troops, and this is interesting, Halderman tells his guys before he goes in he goes men if you die in battle you automatically go to heaven and a soldier responded yes but i'm not sh- i'm not sure i want to go there today 
which is kind of an interesting response you tell your guy. Yeah. But the first Kansas, they do go in, and they're going to sustain the highest casualty rate of this entire battle. Third, they're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Now, you're going to have also Missouri versus Missouri battles here, too. Yeah. You're going to have the, the first Union Missouri on the southwest side of Oak Hill against James McBride's 7th Division Missouri State Guard. This is under George Andrews' guys who said his men were cool and determined. That's what That was a cool he phrased. James McBride's guys on the Confederate side, they aren't cool and determined. They're undisciplined, okay? They fight with deer rifles. That's what this is. They carry the U.S. flag into battle because in their mind, they're still part of the U.S. Oh just God. to make everything even more confusing, right? Most of them are unarmed, but they're going into battle. They end up fighting a vicious, vicious battle. It's so bad that surgeons pick up guns that are fighting. That's how messed up this one is. The Rebs drive Andrews Missourians back in a serious case of Missouri versus Missouri crime area. <laughs> Sturgis, he's going to keep feeding the beast. He's going to send the second yeah. Kansas in along with the surviving guys of the first Kansas and tells them to charge with bayonets. So it ends up in a confusing battle because the uniforms become an issue at this point. There's a great story with the Missouri troops on the, the Confederates wore gray. Feds thought they were Seagulls guys. Yeah. The second Kansas guys who they were fighting against wore blue, and the Confederates thought they were Missouri State Guard. So they end up staring at each other. You just kind of stare at each other? That's what they do. <laughs> Until finally, some of the second Kansas on the Union side figures it out. And they kind of slowly try to back away. And then the Missouri guys realize what's up and they chase them down. And they start firing at each other. Yep. Uh, it's just one of those things. By 11 o'clock in the morning, Sturgis finally gets the memo that Siegel, he go, he, he's ain't there anymore. He's gone to the to the uh, the beer house you know, <laughs> in he, he Sturgis is sitting there on the phone on a Friday night and he realizes she ain't calling. That's what happens. And so he ends <laughs> up, um, he ends up uh, ordering a full retreat. He says, this is we're outnumbered. This is ridiculous. You know, they do fall back. Rebs are finally, finally, finally going to control this oak slash bloody hill. This ass kicking ends up being so thorough when it's all said and done. The northern newspapers are going to call it the bull run of the West, which had just happened. So by noontime, this battle is completely over. And the Rebs find themselves the second major battle in the American Civil War. Now, just think about it for a second. You're old Abe Lincoln. Okay. He's that guy I mentioned before, Mary, who's the president, Mm -hmm. right? He finds out that his army... Granted, it's not the biggest army in the world. They lost to a bunch of militias. Many had no weapons, and they still lost. So the casualty figures for the U.S., out of the 6,000 that ultimately are engaged in this, they lose about 1,200 guys. The Western Army of the Southerners, they have about 12,000 engaged. They lose about 1,100 guys. The numbers are about the same, but they chase the Union back. The grand plan for Lyon originally was to get his nose bloodied a little bit. Yeah and fall back to Springfield and fall back to Rowan, which mm-hmm. is what ultimately what he does. But it ends up being a humiliating, humiliating battle. Back in Springfield, Sturgis is going to give control of his army up to Franz Siegel. Or for whatever reason, he gives it over to him. They fall back to Rowan the next day. And what's interesting, too, is Sturgis ends up taking command back again because Siegel is sitting around what the hell he's doing his but troops he's too stop st- to like make dinner and stuff and like eat and everybody's like could you just lead us again please they're, they're just- stopping to smell the roses and hang out meanwhile yep. they get their ass kicked and they don't know if they're gonna get hit again and they go we need to get the hell out of yep. here and so seagull's too busy too slow it's kind of ironic when the guy who takes over for him is accused of getting out of there too fast 
He's accused of being too slow. I know, but look how many how times like Siegel gets routed in this. <laughs> he does. But Sturtis is ultimately going to take control of it. And as we mentioned before, it's going to end the battle and it's going to begin kind of some intrigue that we led into our Pea Ridge episode before as the month turns into October. Yeah. And the one thing, too, is Price wants to pursue, but McCullough is like, fuck that, because he's worried about the Missouri State Guard and the length of his supply train back to Arkansas. And they're just too disorganized to keep going. So he's like, no, we can't do it. Wilson's Creek is setting the stage for P. Rich. Well, it does. It's a calendar flips. Now we're in, you know, get through September. Now you're in October. Yep. By October, Jackson and Price's army, that milit- that uh, Missouri State Guard, formally joined the Confederacy. So now they're they're mm-hmm. in the Confederacy. But despite this, Missouri never does join the Confederacy. It does stay a border state. And that's because there are way too many pro-Union people in the state. There's yep. too many. They, they just can't do it. There really wasn't many battles in Missouri after this point, but it ended up being that state where there was all kinds of guerrilla warfare going on and yeah, fighting. This they, is where you had guys have, like Bloody Bill prob- Anderson. So it's funny, like Georgia constantly bitches about Uncle Blingy going through there and destroying shit. Missouri had more property damage than any other state in the Civil War. Yeah, you had, you had Bloody Bill Anderson doing his thing. You got yeah. the Qualtrics Raiders doing his thing, yeah. their thing in there. So it was a state where there was a lot of guerrilla warfare that ripped the state up a little bit. Eventually, Price was is going to be driven out of Missouri by early 1862 into Arkansas uh, by Samuel Curtis. We talked about Samuel mm-hmm. Curtis last time, which is going to result in the Battle of Pea Ridge in March of 1862. At the end of the day, Lyon's long-term goal was to drive the Rebs out of Missouri, keep it in, in control of the union, which he kind of did. Yeah. And we kind of backed his he backed his way into it and he got lucky. Now his plan at the end of the day was probably a smart one because they were going to be attacked. And how life would have been if they did attack with those 12,000 guys hitting Springfield might have been bad. What he did though is he did give his guys experience. He did show these guys that they can fight, mm-hmm. but it did set up Siegel for the beginning of a whole bunch of disasters this guy's going to have, including, you know, he'll be a P. Ridge. We'll talk about him. Yeah. He's eventually obviously going to get replaced. Well, Siegel's one of these politically appointed generals, right? Like Lincoln is needs him for the, the German side during the election, right? Like he does help Abraham Lincoln out with the 1860 election, you know, getting the German vote. But then, you know, Siegel throws his little temper tantrum after Fredericksburg when he doesn't get like more troops to command. And then in 1864, Lincoln is going to bring him back in because he's like, oh, I need the German votes. You want to place in the army again? And Siegel's like, whatever. And then you have him failing miserably at, at Newmarket. Siegel is not talented when it comes to military stuff, but because that German thing, you know, they rally behind him like, you know, I fight Mitt Siegel was kind of, you know, what what his troops always said. And we even said that like after Howard took command of the 11th Corps. So Lyon, though, in this is seen as a martyr just for the reasons that you said, you know, like he ultimately like, you know, Missouri ultimately stays in the Union, even though it's got very much like guerrilla warfare and all that. This will be the second major Confederate victory in the war. So we're very early days in the Civil War. And in less than a month, they've had two victories. So what and I, you know, I don't think this had the same impact as Bull Run did simply because of its location. Like you don't hear about Wilson's Creek very much, but to me, it's just as an important battle as Bull Run because of the implications leading into like Pea Ridge. It keeps Missouri in the Union, I think, like what Lyon does. I mean, as much as a crazy guy as he is, Missouri stays in the Union, right? It does. He does everything possible to get the state to flip, though, on the the negative side, only because of his attitude and his anger. I don't know what what best phrase is. He was just kind of a dick, right? He was. He was that guy who just hard temper, had no respect for anything. He was going to get his stuff done. 
And he ended up infuriating a lot of the people. You know, his actions resulted in 50,000 men being brought into, into the battle. Don't think about it. 50,000 guys he calls up in Missouri. Yeah. How many did Lincoln call up after Sumter? 75,000, right? Yeah. It's not that much more. No. I mean, it's just, it's just, so you can see how the pressure was on Missouri and what an important state that was. Yep. For all the reasons we mentioned, for the railroads, communication, but especially the, the supplies. Yep. So at the end of the day, the battle ends up being a, a big Confederate victory, even though, realistically speaking, it was pretty even Stephen. It did give Sterling Price and those guys significant experience that they were going to use later on when they fought at Pea Ridge. And so the, every battle files into the next one, and Pea yep. Ridge again leads into Shiloh. So when you're looking at the Battle of Shiloh, you can follow its back through the genealogy back to this one and kind of yep. see how the armies kind of came together. Then again, some of them will meet later on a couple months later in April. Yep. And P. Ridge, though, Franz Siegel kind of has what is his best moment in the Civil War. <laughs> and he has it very early on. Yeah, when he's, when he's, told, to be, he's told to do artillery. Yeah, but he's job, like, okay. You know? <laughs> Did that. But, but he, again, he's somebody who um, is certainly controversial. Again, we talk about yep. later on in the war, we talk about New Market and places like that yep. where he continually does what he does and mm-hmm. gets himself into more and more trouble and yep. goes from that. So yep. another um, thing but, to, uh, mm-hmm. just another thing to note here um, is General Schofield is going to receive the Medal of Honor for his conspicuous gallantry during this battle, which I thought that was pretty cool. Schofield's one of these guys, he's here at the beginning and he's there at the very end. He's at Franklin. He goes all the way through. He's certainly one of those guys who ends up flying under the radar as he finds himself in a lot of these battles, but he's just one of those guys who's just yep. there. So I think it's a fun study looking at this, going back to the, uh, the Trans-Mississippi, because it really sets up the genesis, like I said before, of leading into Shiloh. Yeah. The troops just don't get to Shiloh. There's a, I mean, this these things all build to each other, and it certainly sets up smaller battles, smaller battle leading up to the big one. And it's exactly. a perfect example of what that is. So, yeah. what's next, Mary? So next week we will be talking Lincoln conspirators with our friend Dave Taylor, who you can find him on Twitter at Lincoln conspirators. We're going to be talking, uh, you know, David Harold, uh, Powell Payne. <laughs> Mary Surratt and George Adzerat, and yes, Dr. Mudd as well, even though he was not one of the ones to hang. We we're going to be talking a little bit about him too. And then the week of the 16th, we are going to be taking that off from recording an episode, but we will be doing our roundtable on Wednesday, August the 18th, which is actually the anniversary of when we recorded our first episode. Um, so that's at six o'clock on Wednesday, August 18th. If you've never attended before, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. We will still be doing our Facebook Live on Saturday. And then we will be getting back into our episodes again with the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky, which will drop on August 28th. we got an action-packed schedule for these next couple of weeks. So, Mary, again, good episode. I thought it was always fun to talk with these guys. Nathaniel Lyon, another guy who was probably killed too early, might have done done bigger and better things. He's an angry bastard, though. He, he 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 reminds me so much of John Brown. Like that's yeah, well, when I, I think a lion, I, I think of John Brown, like they both seem like angry individuals. But you know, you think of guys like Lincoln, right? Yeah. How he liked, he liked General Grant because he fights. Well, this is a guy who fought. Oh, who big liked time. To fight. So you wonder if he would have, how his career might've progressed and how history might've been a little bit different if someone like him survived this yep. and kept going. But it was his bravado that really got him. There was no real reason he had to chase these guys all the way down there. He, he they controlled no. the state, he controlled the state government. He controlled the rail lines. He controlled everything, but he had a bug up his ass, wanted to go get go get price and go get Jack. Yep. So that, he that probably needed to find some Zen, maybe do some yoga and mellow himself out a little bit. Was, wasn't hugged enough for as a child. Probably that was not. the problem. No question. No question. <laughs> anyway, so off we go. So we have some fun things coming. So we'll live again on Saturday, where, where I will be 
calling in remotely again um, from whereabouts unknown. We'll be doing that and we'll have some fun with that. So any final words from you? No, well, episode 51 and we are nearing our one year anniversary. So thank you for all the work you put into this podcast. You are definitely the uh, perfect co-host to do this with. Thank you to our listeners for all your support for these 51 episodes. 51. How about that? Well, off we go to 52. Everyone, everyone, thanks again for listening. We appreciate it. And we look forward to talking to you on our live. And we'll be looking forward to some fun stuff down the road. Good night, Mary. We look forward to talking to yourself. We'll talk to you on Saturday as we go. Have a great week. Have a safe week. And we'll have a great time getting ready to talk on our live about Wilson's Creek. See you guys later. Peace out. Bye.